0: Welcome to another edition of the Beer Vanna Podcast. Hello, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Jeff. As always, uh, with me is Jeff Allworth, author of The Beer Bible from Workman Publishing, Cider Made Simple. I'm trying to do this without looking. Cider Made Simple from Chronicle Books, and uh, The Beer Tasting Toolkit from some... Do it yourself publishing house or something. Also, Chronicle Books. Oh, also Chronicle Books. Okay, but you. it
1: was it was quite well done. <laughs> I did pretty good. Yeah. Uh,
0: of course, he's also uh, blogs at Beervana, and uh, you can find him also at All About Beer.
1: And you are Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at Oregon State University, and a research fellow at. Uh, C Micro in Sao Paulo mm-hmm. and uh, some other place in Bonn, Germany. That's right,
0: IZA. Uh, and you blog. I uh, blog sometimes
1: Sometimes, at, uh beeronomics
0: but we were just talking actually there's, there's an amazing archive a trove of wisdom
1: which it turns out people are starting to discover yeah and, and com- what, commenting on old uh, posts what, of yours
0: it's kind of cool what, what's interesting about blogging is you write it and then you think it's sort of gone um, but it exists it continues to exist on the, on the internets intertubes and uh, uh, people do actually go and, 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 and scroll through the archives so uh, please go uh, check it out comment uh, we should mention that we have a, uh, a a great leap forward in technology. Yeah, absolutely. Today. This is kind of
1: like uh, the news, but it's a uh, it's meta news.
0: That's right. Uh, if we sound different, it's because we're trying out some new technology today. Uh, from my <laughs> from my son, <laughs> I've stolen his microphone, uh, uh, and we're trying to do this without little uh, old cheesy headsets and with a microphone. So um, I hope the sound quality will improve, but uh, you can be the judge. We have one microphone between us. We're going to try that today. Uh, we'll see how it goes,
1: yep it looks we I took a photo of uh, Patrick he looks like a a much younger Larry King <laughs> sitting behind <laughs> it it's a really professional looking piece of equipment.'m i very excited here
0: so. all right so uh, let's 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 uh quickly segue uh into the topic for today um uh, when we were talking about what to talk about today it was it was we were in the throes of winter um, and in fact, by the way uh, I was up in the mountains over the weekend frolicking in the snow uh doing some cross-country skiing around trillium lake um actually one of the nice things about portland better than the hipsters better than the artisanal culture is the fact that you can bomb up to the mountains an hour 15 minutes you can be skiing uh but uh it was cold it was snowy it was wintry yeah and so today we're going to talk about
1: trappist ales of course
0: which are a perfect winter warmer yeah
1: weirdly all the american breweries take all their cool winter beers off the market i know on january 1st so you got to look for something that's gonna keep you warm over the winter i know we've,
0: we've just entered into february and it's probably time for the Widmers to start their uh, their summer lineup on right shelves. <laughs> <laughs> that always that always shocks me when they when they start showing up but they're they're pretty early on yep. so yeah just like the just like the department stores taking away the winter coats in in november uh, the winter beers are gone not, yeah, but Trappist ales uh, remain. They, they, so we'll talk about Trappist ales. Um, but of course, our uh, our new and exciting. I guess not that new anymore. But uh, but first, the news.
1: Our middle aged and exciting, still exciting feature. Yeah, you know I'm
0: really liking this. This feels much better to me having a microphone than, than being ensconced in a headphones.
1: Okay. Yeah. Noted. Too early for me to post a review yet. <laughs> All right, the news. So our first item is kind of a, an interesting trend that we're seeing. Um, last year, uh, Guinness released an IPA on nitrogen, which I don't know if that re- related to the, the later trend on nitrogen, but now both uh, Left Hand and Sam Adams have released uh, entire lines that focus on nitro- nitrogenated beers. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So, with a
0: little widget inside? Yeah,
1: with widgets. Actually, I think Left Hand has some weird tech. They've figured out some witchy technique to do it without the widget. Um, they 've always had uh their their uh milk stout and they do a, a nitrogenated milk stout that does not have a widget, but it still gets that really creamy thing it 's actually one of the, my favorite beers I put it in the beer bible it 's really interesting beer uh, so they have been doing that, and i don 't know if theirs have widgets, but mm-hmm. um yeah, widget tech um, so there you go i don 't know it's it 's really an old technology i mean Guinness has been doing this forever
0: yeah i I stumbled on this to some little video that guinness had produced um about their their innovation of the little widget that allows them to introduce nitrogen when you at the moment you open the the can right introduce nitrogen and it works i mean you get that really nice creamy guinness uh draft um head and and little bubbles that circulate wildly
1: yeah no it is a cool thing and and, uh, for people who don't know nitrogen you can't Force nitrogen into solution like you can CO two. Right, so that's why it's done. I don't know how uh, Left Hand does it, but um, it's why the widget is important. we put the nitrogen in the widget, and then you open things, and the pressure changes, and the nitrogen leaps out and goes into solution, and then you have your Guinness head. You'll and never
0: know how Left Hand does it. It's going to be like the the formula for the syrup at Coke or something. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> never. Uh, so, what does nitrogen do to beer?
1: Gives it a, a creamy. Uh, Sensation on the tongue uh, makes this moose-like head, mm-hmm. and it really inhibits hops. So when yeah. when you see it, uh, when you see IPAs put on uh, nitro, they often taste radically different. And this is one reason why I find it kind of in a counterintuitive trend, since everybody's trying to capture those really bright, evanescent, uh, volatile flavors, which are which are inhibited when you put them on nitrogen. So it seems like a counter trend, but I don't know. We'll we'll see how that goes. All
0: right. So there's news story winner number one.
1: Yes, news story number two, uh, the uh, Oregon Hops and Brewing Archive, which is a project of an, archi- an, ar- an archivist here in uh, Oregon, I think from OSU. I'm not totally. Yes, right?
0: yeah, from OSU because he emailed me a while back. Okay. Um,
1: uh, recently, he, she, they put a cool, they have a, a Tumblr blog, and they put a cool thing on there um, that had old papers from uh, Chuck Curry, who founded the first uh microbrewery here in Oregon in 1980 called Cartwright Brewing. Uh-huh. And uh it was just super fascinating. I was blogging about it today, um or this week. Uh he he, append- he essentially made a steam beer. It was a super crude beer that um that uh he used uh a lager yeast on that didn't have lagering tack. Um he cooled the beer in his kettle overnight. He didn't cool it down uh, and pitch the yeast. So it sat there overnight. Um, he used cluster hops. It was a really kind of crude, <laughs> basic uh, beer. And I think it showed what the thinking was like at that transitional stage when people were trying to figure out what the market was going to be. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty fascinating. If you um, look them up on the Internet, you can see uh, this is not actually breaking news, but uh, you can see what the state of beer was like at the, the dawn of uh, the craft brew era. It was kind of fascinating.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, and the last note. The last note. Uh, which is um, something that you noted from the San Diego Reader. Um, why don't you go ahead because I'm trying to make sense of this?
1: Yeah, well, anyway, it was in the San Diego Reader. I think it's, we don't have, I wrote too much there. Really, the, the point is they were pointing out that uh, people have started to, they've introduced a new word uh, in, and they were reporting, this apparently happened, it started in New York City, so props to the, the Big Apple there. Okay. Um, we've, we've had this trouble with, uh, craft beer and uh, well, what craft beer means, and especially now with uh, Anheuser-Busch buying, yes. buying things, and so what does this mean? And they came up with the word...
0: Indie. Indie beer. Indie beer, uh,
1: which I like it. Yeah, I kind of like it too. I mean, it's it doesn't talk at all about what kind of beer it is, but it does talk about the ownership struggle. Well, I also, yeah, structure. and I
0: also like the fact that you can have two different terms. So craft beer is, you know, describes a type, sort of certain type of beer that's distinct from... Uh, macro loggers, um, perhaps, uh, and uh, indie can describe sort of the state of the brewery.
1: So you can have uh, indie craft and mm-hmm. corporate craft.
0: Yeah, you could even, I suppose, have indie macro logger. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's right. Really hard it wouldn't be really macro indie micro logger. <laughs> yeah, in, in,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> An indie in, indie logger. Indie logger, right? Indie logger. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So um, yeah. Maybe we'll start uh, using the term as well. Yeah, I think it's a good term. We'll okay, work. so so in the in the lexicon, then Ten Barrel, which you mentioned here, um, recently acquired by Anheuser Busch, right? Um, uh, completely acquired, so they own it. Uh, so that would not be an indie brewer.
1: That would be a craft brewer that's not in indie, right? Yeah, yeah. So okay. there we go.
0: Seems seems to work for me. You All guys
1: out there in the podcast land can let us know if it works for you. All
0: right. Okay. So that's the news for this week, uh, and now on to the main topic. Uh, so. Uh, Jeff has brought with us, uh, brought with him, uh, three Trappist beers, and he's going to introduce a topic to us. So, take it away.
1: Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about Trappist beers. They're kind of a uh, a cool little weird subgroup in in the, the world of beer. Um, Belgian beer is hard to categorize anyway, and yeah. it seems like kind of a gimme that you know. Well, you do have this this category Trappist or Abbey ales, mm-hmm. which are, must must define a, a range of styles or something. But um, in fact, they're not really a range of styles. They're really different. What they are, what they have in common is they're made by monasteries. Right. But when you look at the beers, they're actually fairly different, and yeah. that's um, so that's a, a, a fascinating little wrinkle.
0: So you've uh, touched on this, uh, touched on this in the past, but I just want to I just want to reset the landscape here. So uh, in Belgium, we often think about monks brewing beer, right? Um, but that's not everything in Belgium. For example, Stella Artois, right? Big giant macro lager brewer, right? Uh, and then there are other sort of independent, indie, crafty <laughs> brewers as well that don't happen to be monks. Yeah. So t- tell me the history. Where do the monks fit in, in all this?
1: Yeah. So monks um, were the first real um, uh, kind of uh, large scale brewers. Mm-hmm. Um, they started brewing. There was a the the uh, Order of St. Benedict came down, and I think it was, I think that this was the Cistercians um, uh, or the Benedictines, and I'm not totally, I'm not so good on my Catholic history, <laughs> um, but this was... You a, call
0: yourself a religious studies major. Uh, I studied, I studied <laughs> Buddhism, uh,
1: not, not pre-medieval uh, uh, Catholicism. Fair enough. So, uh, the, in the rule of St. Benedict, which mm-hmm. was right at kind of the dawn of the, the, the monastic age, it instructed monks how to behave in monasteries mm-hmm. and one of the key things that it told monks to do is uh, be self-sufficient and uh, that meant that they had to grow their own food and you know have water sources mm-hmm. and that often meant that they made beer and wine and uh part of the reason they made beer and wine was because the water was bad as everyone knows mm-hmm. so that was a good way to avoid uh, dysentery and the black death uh, and it was also an important feature of monasteries to be welcoming to visitors. Mm-hmm. And if you had uh, beer or wine, you could offer them beer or wine. So in the um, the order, the Rule of Saint Benedict was from five thirty, and then the, the monasteries kind of followed in the centuries afterwards. Uh, and and brewing, which had been a domestic chore, was organized around a larger group because you had a, a group of monasteries plus you were making it for uh, right. visitors and stuff. So they were making it in pretty big. Batches, so uh-huh. they were the first ones to get big mash tons and big kettles right. going, and um, they were f- I think that was about the time a lot of the stuff was wooden equipment before that we right. We're in the, the pre boiling era because mm-hmm. there was no reason to boil because there was no hops yet, <laughs> so um, you know, a lot of this equipment was wood, and they they were transitioning to to uh, crude <laughs> what we, would be our 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 measure crude metal equipment right. Um, and then they were the first ones to experiment with, with hops, uh, and, um, they became pretty sophisticated brewers over the, the, the years. Now I'm going to fast forward, uh, over a thousand years mm-hmm. to the French revolution. Okay. So, um, all of Europe has monasteries, monasteries all over the place. And then Napoleon comes along and he's really down on the Catholic church and he sacks a bunch of, uh, the monasteries <laughs> and returns the lands to the people. Uh-huh. Uh, so a lot of the monastic breweries, uh, actually all of them, were destroyed in this era. Right. And then uh, afterward, after the French Revolution, some of the monasteries and some of the countries started to come back. And Belgium was founded in 1830, uh, which allowed Belgian law to govern the way monasteries worked. And right. so the reason we have so many of these Trappist monasteries is because uh, they were especially favorable to the conditions of reestablishing these monasteries. Ah, okay. So when we're, we're talking about a Rochefort or a Val or West Mall, these are monasteries that were built in the years after 1830. Re- okay. bu- sometimes rebuilt, sometimes um, the the buildings still existed and they were just reinhabited.
0: And at what point did their sort of brewing in these monasteries become commercial?
1: It became commercial at that moment, yeah. uh, for the most part. they were They would sell it at the monastery as a way of supporting themselves. I think, I, I don't really you're the economist, but probably the monetary system of 530 was different than the monetary system of 1830. Yes, um,
0: I would imagine. I
1: think that the exchange of, of, of goods uh, mediated by money was probably different somehow, so. Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> there was a the government established currency by 1830, I'm sure that was uh, well-received and made made commerce much more fluid.
1: Right. So the monastery started coming along and, and we'll talk about some of the famous monasteries here. Um, and have been bringing, uh, bringing, brewing back. And, and in fact, we've kind of entered a new golden age. There's a whole bunch of new, uh, Trappist and now Benedictine mon- monasteries that are, uh, brewing. So this is all preamble to your question, which I haven't forgotten, which was <clears throat> how do we distinguish between beer brewed by monks and beer that has like monastic trappings? Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, the, well, so first, the first thing that it's worth noting, and this is a kind of an economic thing is the the monastic brand is really great, like people love the idea of monks brewing beer, yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> this is this becomes a valuable asset, like mm-hmm. if you can associate yourself with a monastery, it sells beer, mm-hmm. which actually is kind of curious, it makes sense. I mean, I understand why uh it appeals to me to think of a monk making beer, yeah, but it is. It is a little bit weird. I think it's a branding scheme. If if, the, if monastic brewing had never existed, I don't know that that would be the first place you'd, you'd go to.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess mon- mon- monks have to stay in mon- monasteries; otherwise, they might be hot commodities on the brewer market. You know, <laughs> That's right. every 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 brewery <laughs> wants to wants to hire a, a monk. <clears throat> uh, so, uh,
1: in the twentieth century. Um, commercial breweries started to try to associate themselves with monasteries. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they actually established relationships with monasteries Mm -hmm. and had um, would brew the beer for monasteries or would brew the beer in conjunction with monasteries. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they had no connection at all. Um, Like San Fuyen is a brewery, actually a brewery I really admire, um, which sounds monastic and looks monastic on a label, but it is in no way monastic and never has been monastic. And the San Fuyen they refer to is an old monastery that was founded in, I think, Rouen is the name of the city they're in, mm-hmm. Ruhel, something like that, uh, from like a thousand years earlier. Absolutely no connection. It's ah. just like saying it's like calling uh, something Lewis and Clark here because Lewis and, Lewis and Clark
0: passed. Yeah, there. but most most Belgian beer, I imagine, is heavily influenced by the the monastic tradition in brewing. So that right. the, the styles of beers and the flavors and
1: yeah, it, it traces it back. So there's a lineage question yeah. there. So then in the 1960s, the the, the the actual monks were brewing beer and being felt like they were getting a little bit ripped off on their brand. Uh, <laughs> formed an organization that uh, cre- and created a law that would allow um, them to sell the product as a authentic Trappist product. Mm. And um, there are not only beer, but there's cheese and other products that are can be classified as authentic Trappist products. Um, so, and- if
0: so, I assume that means if you see Trappist on the label, you can be sure it's from a. Trappist monastery.
1: Yeah, the 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 thing that the, the 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 main rule there is that it has to be for beer. It has to be made on the on the grounds of the monastery. Okay. It has to be made within the walls of the monastery. All right. Uh the Belgian government passed another weird law that uh says that that has this category recognized Belgian abbey beer. Mm-hmm. And this is slightly so you have the Fuyen on the one side which has no connection to any brewery anywhere mm-hmm. but then there are uh, these categories this category of brewing where monks get some benefit there may be some relationship or they may brew for monks or something um and some of and so there are still some of these breweries out there and i probably should have written notes about because <laughs> they were but uh i didn't do that that's okay
0: but I, i'm an economist, kind of, so i want to know one other thing which yeah. is uh tell me a, a short history of the stella artois brewery and 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 I have this idea. Maybe because it's you may have mentioned something in the past that, uh, um, why, uh, uh, what was the dynamic between the the monastic brewers and the growth of Stella Artois? Because, for example, in the United States, a lot of these small local breweries were put out of business as these big breweries came and sort of took over.
1: I have no idea. Ah, yeah. Okay, you right. gotta ping me there. I, uh, brewery history uh, doesn't it doesn't come out of the brain pan.
0: yeah no it's it's, it's, all that well something something we can uh something we can talk about in the future i just find it interesting because in the united states um this is something perhaps we can talk about a little bit later but uh these belgian brewers have have become sort of um big in the u.s and the u.s is a huge market for them now uh and so when you talk about belgian beer in the united states uh we associate it with these um artisanal and, and and monastic brewers yeah um but you know Stella Artois is a huge brewery and i imagine in europe a lot of people associate belgian beer with stella artois so i just find that dynamic very interesting yeah it's, because it, it's uh, well sorry let me just say one more thing which is I, what i was really going to get at is is it because of the the fact that they were in monasteries and sort of the commercialization of their beer was was not necessarily an afterthought but it wasn't going to kill their brewery if they weren't selling a lot they still maybe that allowed them some sort of protection from the the dominance of Stella Artois. Anyway.
1: It could it could be although Stella for I do know that Stella owns there there are these quasi uh monast-, mona- monastic brands that really muddy the water. They really try to uh, okay. uh disguise the fact that uh they're not monastery breweries. And Grimbergen, for example, is one of the, the most prominent ones. Leaf is another one. Uh-huh. You'll see Leaf. Leaf is an Anheuser-Busch, uh it was an Anheuser Busch product and so that means it's now in the Stella, right? Uh, I think Stella's, is, is that right? I, I have a hard time. I that think, I don't know. Yeah, I think Stella, isn't is Stella an Anheuser-Busch product? And in Stella was inter, Interbrew, which gave me an anheuser I think. You've got to go through think. all your
0: mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, right? yeah it's very difficult <laughs> to remember
1: uh, all those things.
0: All right, so but. on the future pod, or on our other pod, <laughs> Macrobrews of the world. Yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> Yeah, I have. I'm not so good at, from from an economic standpoint. I'm sure that a brewery like Stella is very interesting. Uh,
0: yeah. Well, I'll the, check it out. I'll check it out, and then at some future pod we can talk about yeah, because uh, from the a, dynamic.
1: a brewing standpoint, it's not that interesting, and so that's why I haven't spent a lot of time investigating yeah. Stella. It's just another large uh, yeah uh, industrial brewery, which is fine. It's just it, there's not a lot uh, people don't aren't, aren't clamoring to hear about about Stella. About Stella. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. all right.
0: Well, let's let's move on to uh, these beers while we have them. Why don't we get started because um, time's waste and I'm thirsty.
1: Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> we should talk. Talk actually about the beer. Yeah, okay, we've talked about the history, so uh, let's talk about the beer, which uh, will be um, kind of a the, a history of uh, Belgium here, which is pretty cool. So Beautiful. We're going to start out with uh, Rochefort. Uh, I have a Trappist. Uh, the fourth tra- Trappist Rochefort. Uh, I have the eight degree uh, here. Mm-hmm. The ten is kind of their most famous one, mm-hmm. but um, I prefer the 8. And we'll talk about what these things mean a little bit. But. Oh,
0: there's the dog of the pod. By the way, if you've heard some snoring in the background, <laughs> that's because the dog of the pod is uh, is nearby and we have our new microphone technology, which is a great microphone, but uh, it also picks up a lot of ambient sound. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I hope that doesn't put you to sleep. Okay, so back to Rochefort.
1: Yes. Uh, this beer is... Um, uh, in uh, kind of the older style of uh, Belgian brewing, which is uh, a style that involves brown beers. So okay. You, do you want to open that one?
0: Oh yeah. The glassware over there. Yeah. So fancy.
1: So um, in in Belgium, a lot of times, especially with the Trappist breweries, you'll see this uh, number system, the Belgian degree system. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a cool thing to know about um it refers to the original gravity of the beer you want to pour this or you'll get a massive head uh i just wanted to try to get the sound effect oh <laughs> it's true nobody cares what it looks like oh, this, is a, this is an audio
0: medium this microphone is really good listen to the bubbles nice let us just meditate on the bubbles <laughs> very nice
1: i hope the mike was picking that up yeah, it definitely is. Okay. Uh, sorry, everybody, for our meta. meta. We're, yeah, we're we're pretty excited <laughs> we're like about the technology. New yeah. <laughs> uh, in the Belgian degree system, uh, if you have a, a beer that is uh, ten eighty, yep, eight degrees.
0: Um, ten sixty, six degrees. Okay. Um, so. So this is the eight degree, and it's about nine point two percent.
1: Yeah. So it's it's um, ABV it's uh and and they're round. So it's not always going to be exactly 1080, but right. um it's kind of a, a short and dirty quick and dirty way to un- understand what that means. So for other for people who don't know what gravity is, it's the orig- the, the amount of uh, sugar in solution to start with and the mm-hmm. higher the number means the more potential there is for alcohol. So the bigger the bigger the, the, the degree the more alcohol it's going to have. Yeah. Um, back in the olden days in Belgium, all the breweries, not all of them, wheat beer was a little bit different, but, but many of the beers were made brown. Mm-hmm. Uh, they like to boil them forever to get this really rich brown quality. It okay. was kind of considered the, the thing. Um, and so if, you, if we go back, if we had a time machine and we could go back 200 years, uh, most, of the beer, most, most of the barley beer would be brown beer. Uh, and you still find quite a bit of brown beer in Belgium. And it, it harkens back to that era, uh, so this is kind of a, a throwback to, to the, the Brown tradition. Um, that off,
0: is fantastic. Yeah, me. I'm not actually sure I've ever had this before. It is. I think you've introduced me to a new beer. That's I've mm.
1: chosen uh, three of my favorites. We've also got uh, Westmall Triple and Orval here. So just for the folks listening at home, um, so these beers are. Uh, modern interpretations of those. These, as okay. we we talked about, the, the these breweries don't have lineages that go back that far. Right. And um, belt uh, Trappist ales are actually really simple beers. They're they're um, uh, made with a little bit of sugar. So in this beer, you, you notice that there it's not nearly as for for a nine percent beer. It's not doesn't have nearly
0: the heavy body. Yep, I was going to mention that. It's it's mm. malty, but it's not thick. It's um. Yeah. It's really nicely...
1: Yeah, and that's one way to make these... Medium-bodied. To, to balance a beer. If you're not, you're going to use a lot of hops. And most of these beers, the West Mall accepted... Mm-hmm. Actually, these have two hoppy notes here. <laughs> but most most, most uh, Belgian Trappist beers are not hoppy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's
0: the alcohol partly that balances that sugar. Yeah, exactly. Sugar. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: you don't, if, you, um, if you don't have so much body and so much residual sweetness, yeah. it kind of...
0: And it's funny because I'm usually pretty sensitive to alcohol uh the flavor of alcohol and i tend not to like for example double ipas and things like that where the alcohol really comes through and i find um distasteful but but not here at all i think because it's got such a strong malt base yeah and then what kind of yeast are they these are going to be using classic belgian
1: strains that Mm -hmm. have uh uh, a lot of ester production so Mm -hmm. this beer i think you get malt on the one hand you also get a ton of uh, fruit and spice but yeah. it's very it's got a very spicy uh quality
0: mm-hmm. yeah actually i'm getting that more as i take extra sips here
1: yeah that's um that's a, a big fermentation thing in belgium they they do what they call high fermentation which mm-hmm. means warm fermentation usually they'll pitch um somewhere near 70 and often let it free rise so mm-hmm. sometimes it'll get uh 80 78 80 85 somewhere like that yeah.
0: um but these are all cultivated strains of yeast. These aren't wild. Correct.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're, um, they're strains. Interestingly, one of the reasons I wanted to do Westmall is Westmall provides uh, yeast to a number of different breweries oh. uh, in the, the number of the Trappist breweries. Mm-hmm. And many people know West of Lederan, uh, which is mm-hmm. often the most highly rated beer on the beer rating sites. Um, and they make, they're also uh, classic brown beer makers. Mm-hmm. They're two, they're two, uh, uh, Famous beers are brown beers, and um, their big beer uh, is in a category. So this is a double. We've heard about doubles, triples, and then sometimes quadruples. Quadruple is actually not a traditional term. It's a term that um, uh, La Trappe introduced, and um, then now it's become more popular with other things. But um, those beers, those very heavy, very dark beers are are like doubles. They're just stronger, and I prefer to call them strong dark ales. Um, because I think quadruple is, it, it encourages access. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: kind of like the brew dog guys here. Right, yeah. It's crazy like, with it. When's the quintuple coming? <laughs> keep waiting for it.
1: Um, and the, the double just goes back to, um, the double was a common way of making all these old beer styles. There was a beer called double gerst, double diest, double Double witzett. These are all old now defunct styles of beer that use double the amount of malt, so they were just strong beers. So when you see the word double, um, it means you know double strong. So that's but but um, typically they're quite strong. You know this one is nine point two. This would be a very strong double. Usually doubles are maybe seven and a half to eight eight and a half something like that. They're quite quite strong beer. Yeah, Um, they have a ten which is I think over 11%. So it's an entirely stronger beer.
0: Just to finish up my impressions, you get a lot of molten spice on the nose. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very brown. I mean, brown, brown. It's it's not reddish brown at all. It's just a pure brown. A little bit cloudy. Yep, it is. Um, Nice thick head. So
1: there's a secret ingredient in here. Ooh. Uh, which,
0: you're, which you're about to,
1: which I will divulge, re- yes.
0: reveal the secret.
1: I think many people secret are, no more. Yeah, unaware of this, um, it's out there. It's not a super secret. <laughs> find reference to this, but it's <laughs> you're not. You're
0: not putting any top secret things on your email server, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, unclassified. <laughs> okay, good.
1: Would you care to guess? Oh, uh, yeah, you, you can't detect it, so I won't. This is not a test of your master, your palate mastery.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, if you perhaps you could taste it. If you could, you would be it would be remarkable.
0: Yeah. Uh, no, I don't care to guess. I have no idea. <clears throat> Excuse me. A touch of coriander.
1: Oh, a spice. Yeah. They put a little bit of coriander in it, and um, when I talked to the brewery about it, it's it's a kind of an old traditional thing. They're not. En- it seems like they're not entirely sure why they do it anymore. Um, <laughs> but it may have. Um, it may create a kind of. Uh, it may ex accent an ester or something in a mm-hmm. way that they really liked and yeah. they thought it, it was flatter yeah um they don't put it in there so that you taste coriander but yeah they put it in there so
0: yeah i would never have detected it now that you say it of course i want to believe i can detect it i know <laughs> I've tried it many times. But, uh, <laughs> but honestly i don't i don't think so it's not possible
1: so uh we can move on to the next one if you want yeah uh, let's do it the the west mall is is uh uh, a fascinating evolution in all this. Um, it was first brewed in uh, nineteen uh, the nineteen twenties, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, the nineteen thirties, maybe. And before that time, that pale beers were just not common. And so, this is not given credit for being the very first. There's a couple of other beers that might have been before this one. Strong, stronger blonde beers. Mm-hmm. Blonde beers existed, but not not beers like this. Ooh. Ooh, nice. Good mind. Yeah. Um,
0: but this is a triple.
1: But Westmall was the one that definitely made it kind of a famous uh, style. Um, triples now are, are easily the most popular of the Belgian style, or the, Bel- the Abbey styles.
0: Ah, meditate on the bubbles. Very <laughs> <laughs> Uh So this doesn't look anything like what we...
1: Right. So this is a, a fascinating thing, because you know the doubles are usually uh brown and the triples are usually blonde and then the quads are usually brown again so kind of they're not actually that related to each other um
0: but it also just goes to your point which is that trappist isn't a style it's a community
1: yeah it's a exactly that's right um and 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 until like later in the 20th century fairly late in the 20th century uh Westmall's double was by far their bestseller. Mm. The the so it took the success of Lagers to take bring Belgium into Blonde Ale country. And uh the blonde, the, the part of Belgium that really started embracing these strong blonde beers first mm. was the North part. Yeah. Uh, and people will know Duvel is up there uh, in the north. Yeah and Duval, everybody knows is this amazing blonde beer with a snow head, mm-hmm. snowy head. It used to also be an amber beer, an amber to brown beer. Oh, really? And they changed the formulation Ah. in the the 1960s. Yeah. So so there was this big shift towards blonde beers. It's a really recent, you know, compared to Belgium's long history, it's a recent phenomenon.
0: This hits my nose more like a Saison, you know, a lighter, estuary.
1: The the thing I love about this beer, and we'll see, it depends on the bottle being relatively fresh. (sighs) Uh, This beer has something like 38 IBUs. Which for a Belgian mm-hmm. beer is really strong. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know if the are They're you not, getting hops out of this? Yes, I am. Most triples are it's, not very hoppy, especially after the Rochefort. It, yeah, it's very noticeable. Triples just typically are not uh, that hoppy, and that's why yeah. I love this one. And I I try to. Press it on people who think they don't like Belgian beers, uh-huh. uh, but especially their IPA fans, because it's not—it's not really like that. But um, it's a bridge, I think, to people who who like hoppy beers. Yeah,
0: I can totally see that. By the way, this is a triple and it's nine point five percent ABV, and the Rochefort was a double at nine point two percent. So it's right. It's all fairly fungible.
1: Yeah, I mean it's very—it's very much not an American style style beer, but it has um, pretty stiff hopping. And, yeah, uh, they're uh, they're also different in that they're not, not American hops they're very European hops
0: yeah. speaking of north and south uh, are the are the Trappist monasteries distributed across Belgium both in the Flemish and the French speaking parts
1: yeah they are so uh, West Mall mm-hmm. is in the north it's <clears throat> the brewery La Trappe is actually in the Netherlands but part of its property is actually in Belgium <laughs> the brewery is in the Netherlands yeah um, so it's it's in the north it's in Mm -hmm. I mean, those regions are... The distinction between the Netherlands and and North Belgium there is uh, fairly academic uh, in terms of culture. Um, West Vlederen is out to the far west. It's Mm -hmm. almost to France in West Flanders. Uh, Rochefort and Orval are in the south. Mm -hmm. And Chimay is... I didn't visit Chimay. So Chimay is somewhere in the middle, I think. Mm -hmm. Where's DuPont? DuPont is uh, not a monastery, but it's in the south also. No, just...
0: Yeah, but I just mean where...
1: Because it's the one that I know best. Yeah. It's kind of kidney-shaped, uh, Belgium. Right. And DuPont, it was sort of right in the curve of the kidney. Mm. Okay. Uh, uh, Orval, which we'll get to, is very far south.
0: Yeah. So Westmala this, this, uh, uh, West has a real hops, bitter snap on the, uh, on the back of the tongue after you're yeah. drinking. It. It's really quite, quite present there.
1: I, 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 this is one of my big faves. Yeah. We, we actually, I, I suggested that we brew a triple one time. I don't know if you remember us brewing that triple.
0: Uh, I still have a couple of bottles in my fridge, actually. It I was, discovered
1: recently. it was my effort to re- recreate this beer. Mm-hmm. That was the whole, the whole thing. And I don't usually, uh, I'm not a clone brew kind of guy, but I like this beer so well that I thought, oh, it'd be very interesting to see if you see how easy it is to make it. How,
0: how did you rate our effort as it? A- is it related to this beer?
1: I thought our beer was really good. Yeah, I really uh, liked the
0: beer, but I don't... Uh,
1: yeah, I think... I uh, wasn't
0: familiar with them all at the time, so...
1: I think it is not... Um, we did we did not recreate... You would, you would not confuse the two beers. Yeah. This one, we use a less sugar than this has. This is thinner than I remember. Mm. Uh, the quality of hops... I'm sure we hopped it more like Americans. I'm sure we use more late edition hops, and uh, (laughs) that's what we do. I'm sure (laughs) we do. (laughs) Uh, This, I I would be surprised if this has any late edition hops. Yeah, this is just all.
0: It's all bitter. Yeah, that's what that's my impression. As I get esters from the esters from the yeast. It's got a nice blonde, very neutral malt base, and then a and then a um, a bitter snap at the at the end.
1: Yeah, the malt is. malt is neutral but it's quite sweet so you get this balance point it's it's actually tastes to me sweeter than the uh rochefort which is sort of interesting it's more of a candy sweetness Hmm. um yeah i see what you're saying so it you have this balance point that's very different because you've got sweet but also the yeah the the rochefort is is,
0: is quite malty in comparison it's brown and and kind of soft soft and malty yeah exactly Yeah, it's interesting. Both Trappist, but two very different beers. Yeah, yeah, very different. Both fantastic, by the way. (laughs) Highly recommended. Yeah,
1: these. Everybody out there. I mean, we're we're getting a little bit further away from drinking import beers, but anybody who likes beer should go through the Trappist beers. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in general uh, they. Are better than Abbey beers, and there's no reason why why monastic guided breweries. many in many cases. The monks don't even do the brewing anymore. They they do monastic work and, and hire people to come into the monastery to brew. Right, right. Um, But for whatever reason, I think there's something about only brewing two or three beers, or in the case of Orval, one beer uh, over the course of decades that means these people learn how to brew the beer very very well. Mm-hmm. You know, they make they make subtle. Tweaks over the course of decades to just bring it perfectly into exactly where they want it, want it to be and because yeah. they're monks they don't actually care uh, you know they don't sell a ton of this stuff uh, Orval I think is the biggest one and it sells quite a bit actually a hundred thousand barrels something like that wow. um, but but most of them are you know quite a bit smaller than that and they're monks they want to sell enough to keep the monastery open, but they are not guided by the same Right,
0: they're not. To, they're they're out don't have to buy Ferraris. And, that's right. They're <laughs> not out to buy Ferraris. They're not out. And hang out nightclubs, and, <laughs>
1: and they don't have shareholders waiting <laughs> to see the the performance.
0: That's right. Uh, yeah. So there's something sort of pure about pure and non-commercial about uh, about that. Um, it's interesting that you and I are old enough to know to, to remember a time when sort of quality beer was all import, Sort of import. Mm-hmm. Like if you really wanted to drink good beer, you would go find you know you go off and find the old dusty imports at the back of the but now i imagine um this is a bit of a segue. excuse me but yeah, na- yeah, no, but it's, it's interesting because i wonder how much um belgian beers uh, uh sales are threatened or have been impacted by the growth of craft beer in the united states because now it's easy to find really good beer and now even more and more common belgian style beers in the u.s
1: i think that's exactly right uh and i, I actually worry about it because it used to be Ten years ago, it was easier to find these beers than you could find them at the grocery store. Right. You could find them in a lot of places. And now they just don't sell so well, so people are not stocking them as much. And we also know a little bit more about beer. So I think the good bottle shops, if a beer doesn't sell, they don't want to keep a dusty bottle there. Yeah. So they don't don't reorder it. And, um, yeah, I think there is some some jeopardy there and I totally I remember this exactly what you're talking about it used to be like if you wanted to be the coolest kid in the Uh beer crowd you'd talk about you know your DuPont and your and and Belgians always had the most cachet yeah so uh, you know your your Westmalls and your Orval it was very it's always been very cool to like Orval um that's kind of gone away and now if you drink these beers I sometimes feel like an old fuddy-duddy like oh you old man with your weird old imports we've left you behind but I- yeah
0: well that's the other thing about um, uh, indie beer <laughs> yes <laughs> is, and um, these are the ultimate indies <laughs> uh, is these days are sort of a a um, uh, Emphasis on, I don't know what, the newest, latest mm-hmm. fad, fad, trend, phase. So there's always something new now in craft beer. Um, and uh, the kind of old traditional beer that's been brewed for three hundred, four hundred thousand 400,000 years maybe doesn't quite have that cachet anymore. That sort of... The, 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 the attitudes have changed.
1: Yeah, I think it's totally it's totally happening. And let's use that as a good segue to Orval because I, I will... Uh, I, I believe that uh, Westmall and Rochefort may fi- fall outside of Americans' palates. Mm-hmm. And really? I believe Orval will too. And I'll tell you this. You need to... Uh, America, you need to come on board with Orval. <laughs> uh, this is one where I think your palate... You, you need to horse your palate uh, toward Orval. This is uh, certainly one of the best beers made in the world. It's arguably the best beer made in the world. Um when I was, to, just to impress you, if you're an old man like me and an old beer nerd, when I was at uh, DuPont, Olivier Dedecker, the brewer there, uh, told me that... <sighs> perfect. This is extremely Very impressive, impressive, that, was my, that
0: was my rapid intake of breath was, did I blow that one? But,
1: no. no. You're, a, you're a seasoned vet. Uh, Olivier told me that uh, his favorite beer in the world... Was Orval, and he had, he would buy it by the case and put it in his basement. Uh. And it was a story I I heard from uh, two or three other brewers, too, really famous uh, Belgian brewers. This beer is a standard setter for uh, so much uh, of what's happening in the world. Um, It's just an amazing beer.
0: Okay, so it's um, 6.9 ABV. So.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about this beer a little bit. This beer is uh, one of the later of the early, of the, the original Trappist to come online. I think it was in the, the 1930s or 40s that that they built their brewery. And they hired uh, two two people to build this beer. This beer is a weird, it's, a, it's a kind of a weird amalgam uh the the guy uh that they hired to be their master brewer was named uh Martin Pappenheimer mm-hmm. he was german mm-hmm. and his uh uh assistant was John Van Heule uh, i may be pronouncing mispronouncing that mm-hmm. who was a belgian but a belgian who had worked as an english worked in england as a brewer uh huh so when they started putting this beer together uh they they just brought influences from all over the place right um, this beer is made with a lot, of, comparatively, comparatively, mm-hmm. uh, two kinds of caramel malt, a fair amount of caramel malt, which is really unusual in Belgian beer.
0: Yeah, it's a it's an interesting color. It's more amber, yeah, sort of straw to amber. It's light but um, but cloudy, and has extremely effervescent and a very sort of creamy, peaky head.
1: It's a yeah, it's an interesting looking looking beer. It's it's always been kind of cloudy and and hazy. Yeah. <clears throat> um, And so, so, it starts out that way. It was originally uh, fermented open, and that only changed when they modernized the brewery not that long ago, last twenty or thirty years um, and then the most interesting part is uh, it 's dry hopped ah. so it has uh, and, and interestingly they 've changed the hops a little bit over time. I was about used to ask you it yeah, it used to have a lot of steering goldings. Um, Holler Tower and Steering Goldings. And now it has a Holler Tower Strisselspalt. And when I was there, uh, uh, Francois de Heren, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, Herin, <laughs> uh, that was... told me that, and he didn't tell me the varieties, but he said they're now using American hops.
0: Ah, of course.
1: So it's a real amalgam. Um, but then the interesting thing happens in after primary fermentation. They have these long, cylindrical... Uh, uh, fermenters that are Mm -hmm. on their side so they're like tubes on their side oh interesting and they pitch it with brett and they let it sit there for six weeks on the brett and then they bottle it and it's it's not super bready well, taste it
0: Mm. a little bit but i don't get a lot of brett
1: Yeah, you're right. This one's not super bready. This is the cool thing about this beer. They only let the bread in there like six weeks, Uh bottle condition it another month, release it on the market. Uh, And the 6.9% is actually uh, an average for the United States market. (laughs) Uh, It's brewed to Uh 6.2%. And it will go to 7.3 or 4
0: as it sit in the bottle. Why well, as it sit in the bottle. Uh, okay. <laughs> and they had to they had
1: to come up with a percent that worked for the United States government. <laughs> they write six point nine percent, but it's um it's a it's a beer in transition. So when you taste this beer when it's very fresh, like at the brewery, yeah, uh, and when it's just first bottled, mm-hmm. the the hops are super prevalent prevalent. Right. They really they really pop. Yeah, uh, it's much more malty. Those caramel malts are really. Heavy and uh, they a- actually the fresh one I don't really like so well because it's a little bit out of balance. The right. caramel is too much. Uh-huh. Um, I-, I do like the hops, the hops are great, yeah. uh, but it just feels a little bit too thick and kind of treacly,
0: right? But then certainly not now, no,
1: no, but the, exactly. But then the uh, uh, the bread takes over, and bread is a wild yeast. I think we've talked about this in the past, right? And it will, it has the capacity to eat. Uh, sugar molecules that regular domesticated yeast can't eat. So after the primary fermentation, there's all this sugar that's left there that that would normally not be eaten by the yeast. But in the bottle, those those brett yeasts will continue to gobble that stuff down and they will gobble it for years. And you can, it says on the bottle that uh, you should drink it within five years. (laughs) The best buy date is five years after the uh, bottling date. Um, And it will continue to change over that whole time and it will become an extremely dry, austere beer uh, with um, a little bit of hop character and, a, and a, just a very dry palate, and the caramel malt, a, the caramel malt just go away. Like all that stuff gets gobbled up. Yeah, yeah. So, and this does taste premature. This one was bottled um, uh, last April, April twenty fifteen. So, April Fool's Day in twenty fifteen. Hmm. So, this is a beer that uh, I think. Mm. Like right now, the American the, the Americans are are I'll trying to figure to out through. how to brew with wild yeast mm-hmm. and figure out how to get balance and all these things in, into a beer. They're just finally coming to the place where the beers they're making are approaching the the kind of quality and consistency and complexity of an of an Orval. And it's you know it's taken us a decade of working with this. Yeah, beer. I mean
0: this is this is what I would describe as a very complex beer, but very subtly complex. I mean, there's nothing that's hitting you over the head or in your face. Um, as often American brewers are going for some big big flavor, big taste. It's just a an amalgam of lots of little subtle things going on. It's a very interesting beer.
1: Yeah, it is a very interesting beer. And it and it has all these uh oh, funny it's really good by the way. <laughs> and <laughs> and beer. it's the only oh. beer, We're already done with this, we've got to put some more in the bottle. In yeah. The yeah, yeah. I ha- actually uh Sally my wife always gives me a bottle of Orval for Christmas and um, in prep for this this pod last night I had my bottle of Orval and Uh, uh, it was actually quite a bit different than this and I'm going to have to go home and look and see when it was made Mm -hmm. it was a it was a little bit uh, younger than this Mm -hmm. so it had more body and uh, more more hop character but it was it was down the road it wasn't it wasn't fresh right it's the only beer the brewery makes they do make a a version of this that they sell on tap there but one beer an entire brewery that makes a hundred thousand barrels of one beer Mm -hmm. and um, they could sell uh, you know Two million barrels of this stuff. I think if they wanted to, uh, it's really popular, and, and they, you know, they yeah, for good reason, have contracts all over the place. So the last thing I will say about Orval, and then we can uh, maybe kind of wrap this up, is there is a way in which Orval is sort of uh, despite the fact that it has these weird influences from uh, German, Belgian, and uh, British histories. It also is very much like uh, the beers that would have been brewed in southern Belgium 100, 200 years ago, which were Saisons. They were mm-hmm. rustic farmhouse beers. And this, is, this has a real quality of a rustic farmhouse beer. Yeah. It has you know persistent hop character, which if you're a farmer and you had a lot of hops, you'd throw those in there. Mm-hmm. It's got the wild yeast. Yeah. Um, it's got the, the caramel malts. The thicker malt body is, is something that you get out of rustic grains. Uh-huh. So all this stuff, it's more like a saison than it is like certainly like these two beers that we had. Right. And in southern Belgium, saison's that's, Cez- that's that's the region for saison's. For so when you look at these different beer styles, you can see um, the, 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 the ancient brown beers that were part of uh, the tradition of, of barley beer in the north, mm-hmm. um, the emergence of uh, blonde strong beers mm-hmm. that came along about 100 years ago,
0: and the Rochefort in uh, the West Mala, yeah, uh, respectively
1: and then the uh, even more ancient tradition of saisons which uh, I, you know i think if you were to classify orval as anything if you're trying to put it in with any groups that are sort of like you'd, you'd probably choose saisons right so
0: and yet all trappist ales
1: all trappist ales so there you go
0: so there you go well that's fascinating and delicious <laughs> <laughs> it is it is
1: i li- these are these are beers that are i i, I you know yeah, it's sh- I do love so many beers that I know every time we talk about beers, I end up saying, oh, I love these beers. They're great. But but the Travis beers are special. There's something very cool about the Travis beers. Yeah. I got to go to three Travis monasteries, and um, there's just something cool. Well, and, if you
0: didn't love lots of beers, I wouldn't expect you to spend so much time writing about them. So it's good.
1: It's true. But I want to say, as much as I love all beers, I really love these beers. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it's too bad they're a little bit harder to find, but you should definitely go out. Uh, these are three exceptional uh, examples, by the way. Of trap, of trap, uh, I can now attest. Um, uh, so I think that's a very good, a very good range to start uh, to start your exploration into into Trappist Dales.
1: Yeah. Uh- we should actually just before we we end, we should say that a whole bunch of these new ones are opening, and we have three traps. We have three mon- monastic breweries here in the United States. Okay, uh, we have Spencer, which is in uh, somewhere in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. It might actually be in Spencer, Massachusetts. That might be the town that it's from. Okay, it's a Benedictine brewery. Right. There's a brewery uh, called Christ in the Desert in Al- in near in uh, New Mexico, mm-hmm. not Albuquerque, somewhere right. in New Mexico. Uh, I think they're also Benedictine, and then here in in Oregon at the Mount Angel Abbey, uh, we have uh, they're also a Benedictine group. Right, uh, a monastery that's developing a brewery. Just and getting has, started. Yeah, and they have been developing it for years now, uh-huh. which uh, on monastic time is sprightly. Yeah, they're <laughs> <laughs> just getting started. <laughs> just getting started. They are, they have been working with uh, Alex Ganoum at Upright Brewing uh-huh. to develop their beer, uh, and they're going to have. Uh, at least two beers to start out with. They want to follow the tradition of having not a lot of beers, not a modern thing, but perfecting and developing a beer. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten to watch that process a little bit. They've invited me down to to talk to the to talk to the monks and to uh, watch them as they brew it. And I've uh-huh. gotten to taste some of the batches of uh, Black Habit Ale, uh-huh. which is their uh, their dark beer, okay. uh, which they developed with Alex. Um, and actually, this last Oktoberfest. Uh, people in Oregon will, will know that Mount Angel is famous for the Oktoberfest the, uh-huh. that is there. They served, uh, they brewed a batch at uh, Upright. Right. And because they haven't yet gotten their, their their brewery, but they are gonna get a brewery and Father Martin there at the at the monastery is a home brewer. He has <laughs> you'll appreciate this as he's gotten more and more involved in this. He he's done fundraising and he has built a, a little test home brewery. Uh-huh. It's like a two thousand dollar system. Oh, okay. He was telling me
0: about this system like,
1: oh man, you are the man. That <laughs> is some, that is a Impressive.
0: It's got pumps and heaters. Exactly. I think he's got
1: jackets and heating jackets and glycol jackets, and it's like a little It is a micro brewery. Uh, uh,
0: do you know uh, sort of, uh, or can you, or if you do know, can you say what what kind of style you think they're going to be honing in on at the end?
1: Yeah the the uh, the dark. Uh, the Black Habit is uh, something like the rush It mm-hmm. is a darker beer. It's not that strong. I think it's something in like the seven percent range. Mm-hmm. It's got a little bit of rye in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little. The, the cool thing about Mount Angel is they own hop fields. It's yeah. right down there in the hop fields, and they've always uh, leased them out for, for decades. But they are going to use some of the hops that are grown on their own hop fields. Uh, so they wanted to make a style that would work well with. Uh, they have Willamette hops there, um, which is a a really good style for these types of beers. It's yeah. a kind of classic European hop. Uh, well, it's grown. It's from Fuggle, so it has that that character. And I think they're going to do something that's like a, a an amalgam that might have of American pale ale and saison and maybe wheat beer. They're working on some lighter version, a uh, lighter version of a beer that nice. will be uh, Oregon like, but maybe also a little bit Belgian. So yeah. that one is not quite. As far as i know that one is not quite as far down the road but um good they're they're taking years to develop these beers so that they will have this kind of dialed in quality that these ones have
0: yeah well especially in these days you gotta you gotta hit the ground running yep
1: so there you go all right so uh go drink trappist ale yeah
0: or benedictine ale or benedictine ale that's right so let's um let's turn now to the mailbag yeah shall we uh because our mailbag's growing it thank is you, thank you all for uh starting to uh send in your thoughts and comments i
1: didn't even have to put out a, a call a, a last minute desperate call on on facebook for mailbag comments this yeah
0: time. we really we really enjoy hearing what other people want to know about beer thinking about beer and questions they have and we're getting some really exceptional ones so uh we don't have time for all of them but we picked three uh to talk about on on air uh this time uh so jeff why don't you um why don't you yeah. go ahead and tell us
1: i'll set this first one up because it's really a question for you and it's such a good question that uh if we can do some research and think about this a little bit more and talk to some people we might devote a whole show to it it's yeah it's really good stuff uh joe cohen from seattle uh sent an email and he said I'm, there were two parts and i'm only gonna touch on the first part because uh We need to say something in case we do that show. Uh, He writes, something I've been thinking a lot about lately is how if breweries should adjust to changing taste demands, especially as those differ depending on if you're in Portland, Seattle versus a more rural market. Uh, And really he's saying, you know, he he was was talking about like if you're trying to sell a beer in the Portland market, in the Southeast Portland market, the kind of beer that's going to sell there maybe it look different than in the outer Portland market or the, uh, Al, you know Albany market or Salem market or even more rural,
0: it even is, further rural. It markets. is an excellent question, and it's a it's a very complicated question in the following way because you know I think and I've mentioned this a number of times talking about the evolution of the craft uh, beer market in the United States that it's really a story of. Um, uh, Derived demand or growing demand. So, as you start to become familiar with craft beer, you know, in the previous generation, our generation, it was a lot of people who were switching over from macro lagers uh, into these new beers. Now there's a whole generation that's sort of native to craft beer, just like native to technology. Um, but either way, I think it's an evolution of taste. So, uh, if you're in a really seasoned, saturated market like Portland, you probably are looking to come with a beer that's distinct and uh, maybe uh, pretty flavorful and uh, and modern. If you're trying to win new customers to the brand in new markets or more rural areas perhaps that aren't Mm -hmm. as saturated by craft beer, I would imagine you're trying to come with some kind of uh, less sort of... um, trying to think of the right adjective bold beer you know like a something more familiar yeah like a like a sort of middle of the road pale ale that's very approachable that's uh, a nice stepping stone from a macro lager for example um, or something less so I think that it's 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 partly determined by the market your face and what your strat growth strategy is you know are you you know if you're a local brewer in a saturated market like Portland or San Diego or um, New York City perhaps, uh, you know it might be a lot different. You need to sort of quickly establish yourself as something new and modern, mm-hmm. um, but if you're trying to get it going in a in a market that's fairly new to craft beer or there's not a whole lot around, you might be trying to establish yourself in a very different way, come up with a you know with a really nice sort of bridge pale ale maybe even do a logger or something like that and so i i think it's a it's it's a fascinating question and and it has a lot to do i think with uh your your business plan and your growth strategy Mm -hmm. if that makes sense
1: yeah i think that's right it's it's a it's something that would be great to get some data on if we could talk to some brewers that uh sell uh in a couple of states and you know uh, some
0: saturated sales i do think I, I will say one more thing about it which is that i think that these days in more saturated markets um breweries have to be much more nimble because styles are changing tastes are changing all the time and there's a lot of um and i mentioned this with we were talking about these beers uh today the trappistales is that there's a lot of um uh, you know fad sounds pejorative but you know, there's a lot of fads that come along. One day sure. it's one day it's big bourbon barrel aged uh, uh, stouts, and then it becomes you know Belgian beers. Belgian style beers were really big, and you know Goza becomes big. You know, there's lots of styles that seem to seem to hit, and people get excited about them. And then you need to be nimble and respond to those kinds of trends.
1: Yeah, I'm reminded of fashion. You know, in in, in r- rural areas, uh, people do not wear. Uh, you know, changing fashions of the day. The culture is is designed much more around kind of traditional looks mm-hmm. and they send different signals. Whereas in cities, people like to change fashion seasonally and, uh, you know, they, they always pursue new fashions. And, and so it's, a, it's an entirely, like, if you're a clothing manufacturer and you're selling at Walmart, you probably do it differently than if you're doing it at Saks. Yeah,
0: different. that and I think it takes a while for fashion to, uh, fashion and maybe beer styles uh, to sort of migrate from one area to the next so you know I remember when I moved from California to Wisconsin as a kid you know in California it always seemed like you're there were trendsetters out there in in Wisconsin you know it was last year's trend that sort of finally hit the local department stores things like that Uh, so I think that's um, that's true actually I you know I, I said I don't want to sound pejorative because actually I think that it's exactly the opposite it's one of the really exciting things about craft beer is it's now it is very local and nimble and Diverse and quickly changing, which is exciting. It's not the same Budweiser you're drinking every single year after year after year after year. Uh, even standard styles are being tweaked by craft brewers a lot. Um, and sometimes, uh, if you think about some of the bigger, more established craft brewers in Oregon, you know their lineup five, even as little as five years ago re- resembles very little their lineups today. Um, I know, for example, Widmer has done a lot of changing around of their standard lineup. Haifa, uh, Weizen is the is the one that that uh, they keep selling. So, so I think that that's actually just sort of part of being a, a modern craft brewer is is having to be very uh, adaptable and um, and it's also nice for the brewers because they get a little tired of bringing the same beer every single every yep. single day. So anyway so that's yeah that's actually you know we've talked about this um in terms of uh um the novelty curve having to always always try to be on the forefront of of what's new and exciting and that's definitely some sub- subject for the pod in the future uh
1: we also heard from sean paul mateer uh from baltimore was also nice that we're seeing hi sean hearing yeah hi sean Uh, Hearing from people outside of uh, our region. Absolutely. Um, And he had a a kind of a long uh, email that uh, described he is a packager, and he described the difficulty in packaging, uh, switching, if you have a bottling line, switching Mm -hmm. from a 12-ounce to a a, a 16-ounce or one of... Switching the equipment or twenty two
0: ounce yeah this goes back to our discussion about yeah, why why do people buy twenty two ounce bottles of beer when when uh, twelve ounce six packs are much cheaper
1: yeah he he's, he writes my first thought of your discussion was amount the uh, the amount of time uh, i e cost of the brewery that it takes to switch between package series twelve ounce cans or bottles are the standard size so changing to sixteen or twenty two ounce bombers requires time and well trained operators it, he doesn't uh, there's not really a question here or, or anything to note other than um, depending on the package uh range that you want to offer there are costs uh real costs to switching between between them
0: yeah and i think it's actually a point that we never made before which is i know that at least locally here uh in oregon in portland uh specifically uh 22-ounce bottles became very popular for craft brewers and became sort of established in the market partly because there were these mobile bottling line operators Mm -hmm. um, and that's generally what they used Mm -hmm. they had a little bottling line that would brew that would brew that would bottle uh, beer in 22-ounce bottles and they would they would would pull up to your brewery with a big truck um, and the bottling line would be inside and they'd hook it up to your tanks and bottle your beer for you so um so, just the, just the technology itself is a big reason why I think that 22 ounce bottles became established um, and probably also a reason why uh, they don't go away. Right. Um, but as we've heard, there's also other, lots of people prefer them on the demand side as well. So, it's, good, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good point. I know that um, for small breweries, bottling line is sort of the last big step they take, it's something you put off for a long time because it's really expensive. Um, and that's a big, a big yeah. step, a big, a big step forward. So a lot of times you're you're figuring out ways to do it uh, more cheaply, and these mobile bottling lines are one way to do it. Indeed.
1: So our last uh, comment, I have to say, was extremely exciting to get because it came in in Cyrillic script, the name, <laughs> and um, it came from uh, Russia. Alexey Lago, and I apologize, Alexey, if I'm mispronouncing your name, uh, wrote, writes, It seems that the legend of this... Dosvidanya. Uh, Dosvidanya. Uh, he's writing, uh, uh, responding to our uh, comment, comments on uh, porters and stouts, and especially Russian imperial stouts. Russian imperial stouts, yeah. He writes, It seems that the legend of this beer being delivered to the Russian royal court in the 18th century percolated widely and was reproduced in most sources on the topic. This pros- prompted Russian beer historian and enthusiast Yuri Kat- Tunin, he's sort of the Martin Cornell in my home country, uh, to dig records and publish his interesting findings in a lo- in a blog post. Uh, and I'm going to actually read you this blog post if you want to go check it out. It is, co- it is He's correct that it is very much like a Martin Cornell post. It's very long, it's very, very <laughs> detailed. Very detailed. Yeah. So it's uh, www.beercult.ru slash profiles slash blogs slash imperial stout. So go check that out. You, it, it's in Russian, so you need to click the. Uh, if you're in Chrome, uh, click the translate this button. Or if you're not in Chrome, you have to figure out a way to translate it. Um, I'm I'm not going to actually try to uh, explain what he was saying. It, it talks a little bit about uh, the name. It talks a little bit about the 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 the, the, the nature of what an imperial. Uh, court is and Mm -hmm. who received that so there's a lot of subtlety there and i i don't want to he doesn't
0: he doesn't uh try to dispel the he doesn't call the story apocryphal
1: no i think he brings nuance to uh the story no he didn't he didn't say anything like um we it's all it's all horseshit yeah we 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 never got any porter what are you talking about (laughs) no it's not like that but it is um it is martin cornellish and if you are a a history nerd definitely check it out
0: great Great. maybe we can put that link up on the uh uh, the Facebook page, or, or you could do it on your blog or something. So, yeah, um, so you can find it. All right, so uh, yeah, so uh, beer Sherpa, beer Sherpa recommendations for the week. So I actually have a good one because oh, I,
1: good. I thought I, I thought for sure you're going to give me the deer in the headlight looks. Yeah, there.
0: yeah. Well, <laughs> I I didn't I didn't think about. It, but actually, uh, so uh, I'll kind of do a twofer for here, um, just because uh, the one beer resembles the other. So when we were traveling in in, in Britain and doing research for your book and I was chauffeuring you around. Uh, I fell in love with this beer from the Bonebridge Brewery called Kipling. Mm. And because it used a lot of New Zealand hops, Nelson Salvin probably, and maybe a couple others, uh, which I particularly adore um, because I find the grapefruit and tropical fruit flavors just intoxicating. And Kipling was really nice because it wasn't a big beer. It was it was a very, very, pa- very based on pale malts and very uh, light-bodied beer, and it really, really highlighted the, the wonderful aromatics of, of these hops, um, and uh, I've missed it ever since. And I stumbled upon the, um, I, I guess this is a rotating series, I'm not sure, uh, uh, Sierra Nevada has something they call Beer Camp, and they have one right now called uh-huh. Tropical IPA, so I don't know if Beer Camp is a common... Uh, beer,
1: beer Camp is a thing that they, actually, it's a beer camp, and they invite people there, and you work on... You, you make your own beer. You have to win this contest. Oh, go there you to go. So you yeah. know all about it.
0: I have nothing. I know nothing about beer camp, but I just saw tropical IPA, and I knew okay. I know what they're doing. They're using, <laughs> they're using New Zealand hops. I'm going to try this out, and I think it's fabulous. I think it's 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 bigger. It's a much bigger. It's more IPA uh, version, um, but it has a lot of the same taste characteristics as Kipling. So if you like, if you really like those New Zealand style hops, grapefruit, tropical fruits, it super it highlights them really well, and it's super saturated uh flavor as you get from modern from modern ipas i think my compatriot here would probably um uh not like it as much because you're not you're a little more sensitive to those new zealand hops but yeah um,
1: I, I don't get the tropical i get a human sweat quality yeah
0: yeah so, so some, for some people that's and particularly new zealand hops i found in the sriracha is one that we've talked about i think in the past that i i dislike because i just get dill right yeah. Um, and you find that crazy, you get lemon. So, uh, but if you like these hops, uh, this I think is an exceptional uh, um, platform, an uh, exceptional uh, um, uh, example of uh, of those hops, and it's super highlights them. And I and I really like it. So that's cool. my that's my recommendation for the week at Sierra Nevada Beer Camp Tropical IPA. Uh, if you can't find that, if you're in Europe, uh, you can look for Kipling, mm-hmm. which that's is cool. Thornbridge Brewery. Well, I'm going to throw out Omegon Three Philosophers, okay. which
1: is an Abbey style beer. It's a, a strong dark ale, so it's a big, big booming dark beer. It's got um, cherries or raspberries. I mean, it's got some fruit in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is really. It's a little bit of an American take on the style of beer. It, these 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 beers that we tried today, you'll you'll I think everyone will recognize that they have a really Belgian quality about them. Three Philosophers is a little bit less overtly Belgian in, uh-huh. in its character, so it, it's a little bit more familiar. Uh, and it is really quite quite beloved i 've encountered very many people who dislike it. it It hits people the beer geeks and the uh, the, the people who don 't don 't rave about beer like it equally and there 's yeah. a cool little uh, portland connection here i don 't actually know how he got involved in it, but local home brewer uh, Noel Blake was involved in the development of that beer nice. It comes from a, a homebrew recipe that he had. Uh, working here uh, as a member of the brew crew. Uh And um, so there's a a cool Portland connection, and it's one of the better examples of an Abbey-style ale brewed in the United States. So, Omegonics, three philosophers. Three philosophers. Look
0: for it in your stores. Okay, well, uh, that about does it for the uh, podcast this week. Uh, A few words about how to get in touch. Uh, Thank you for getting in touch and continue to do so. You can uh, email uh, us at at uh, the underscore beeraxe at yahoo.com that's B-E-E-R-A-X at yahoo.com or you can visit the beervana blog f- facebook page um, you can find jeff of course uh blogging about beer um at uh beervana and tweeting about it at at Birvana, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as well as the all about beer blog uh, all about beer magazine excuse me
1: and you can find patrick at his blog Beeronomics, um we're at uh, we talked a, mo- a moment ago, or before the blog started, about you might post some of your greatest hits to put those back out there for people looking in the archives. Uh-huh. I think that's a good idea. Uh, and you tweet at at Buranomics. I do. So look for us there. And also, uh, did, did you... I zoned out there. I was thinking about Trappistales. Did you get the... <laughs> Uh, the mailbag email address
0: yes okay once again the underscore beerax at com.
1: sorry everyone I zoned out there. <laughs> um, yeah send us send us your mailbag stuff that was we got we great responses last week and hope to hear uh, more of them in the future so all right until then I'm going to grab the Orval I will go with the Trappist, or the Rochefort it says Trappist at the top
0: I keep looking at that label and Trappist, or Trappist, Rochefort. Rochefort. all right <laughs> all right uh, Salon Saloncha Salon, uh, Salon. 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 Uh, salut. cheers. How do they say cheers
1: in French? How do I not know that? Uh,
0: uh salut. 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 I, I don't know how they do it in Flemish though. Uh, something Flemishish. It's
1: like prost but prosit something like that? I don't know. All
0: right, my bad. All right. So, uh, cheers. <laughs> cheers. Oh, we didn't think. There we go. <laughs>